Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Exemplary Church. Good morning. Isn't it worth being here just to see Reese's baptism? What a special sight that is. Congratulations to her and your family. This morning, the title of the sermon is A Fork in the Road. If you, being from Kentucky, I know all of you all know what a fork in the road is. Now you're driving along sometimes and you have to make a choice. You have to go right, you have to go left. And spiritually, we get in those same places where you have to choose where to go. So this is the fork in the road. Yogi Berra, the uh, great Yankees baseball player, says, he uh, said this, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. He also has a book, uh, interestingly, Yogi Berra has a book, and it's um, qu quotations by Yogi Berra, and some of these I really said, <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Yesterday, Trisha and I were out, and uh, or recently we were out, and we had a date and went to lunch, and then we went to see a fork in the road. So in Franklin, there's a fork in the road at the fork. It's at Ool's Road and Branch Road. But it's 21 feet tall. It's, it's a real fork. And oftentimes in my life, I wish I could see forks this well. I mean, sometimes you know you're at a fork. Sometimes you realize you're at a fork after it occurs. And so a fork in the road is, is, is something that happens to us on a regular basis. Where we get to that place and we have to make a decision about where we are and what we're doing and which way we're going to choose to go. So this is the way we're going to go this morning. Our passage is 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16, and we're going to take two passages. Uh, one, they took the right fork, that's 1 Thessalonians 2. The other, they took the wrong fork, and we'll be looking at Luke 4 as well. And so let's pray together, and then we'll read God's Word together and begin on this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for the church at Thessalonica that we can use to imitate. We pray that you bless our time together, and we thank you for the chance we have just to serve you in so many ways. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word in honor of the word, and we're reading 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. 
And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. You may be seated. Just as in a way of review and, and thinking about where we are in this text, Paul wrote several letters to churches. He wrote to the church as a whole. He wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Romans. And then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And I always tell people to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians by remembering this saying, Gentiles eat pork chops. When you take that first letter of each of those, you can put those in order. But that's the letters that he wrote to the churches. He also wrote letters to individuals, First and Second Timothy, Philemon. Um, what's the other one, Ben? Philemon and Titus, Colossians. And so we have several books of these books to the churches. Our passage today in 1 Thessalonians is the only one that doesn't receive a rebuke. One of the things I love about the word is it's not sugar-coated. I mean, it's just not this pandering, make-you-feel-good book. So when we look at what Paul wrote to the churches, when he wrote to the church at 1 Corinthians, uh, all the other books he, he rebuked in some way, but this one was a serious rebuke. He rebuked a man for sleeping with his mother-in-law. So certainly not sugar-coated there. And then in 2 Corinthians, he rebuked them again <clears throat> because he had repented of his sin and they were not letting him back in the church. So he rebuked them again. So he let them back in the church. And so as we look at this, we see 1 Thessalonians as the ideal church. I am not saying they were perfect. I'm just saying Paul doesn't rebuke them, and he gives them some very complimentary things. So if we're looking at a church and we're at a fork, we would say we want to follow the th church at Thessalonica. They were certainly on top of things. Actually, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 6 and 7, and, be you, become, and you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I like that verse because it says, you received the word in much affliction. And then it says, with joy of the Holy Spirit. And when you're receiving the word with affliction and you still have joy, you are doing something. So that you may become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so that's a, that's a great thing. In the passage that we just read, I want to point out just a few things there about the church at Thessalonica. And first of all, it says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, 
which you have heard from us. For any of us, we have to receive the Word of God. If we don't receive it, we're just hearing it. And when you just hear it, you aren't processing it to where you receive it and it becomes real in your life. The Word has to be real in our life and we have to receive it. Just like it says that you have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to receive the Word. You can't just hear it. You've got to receive it. And so you want to take it and make it part of your life. It also says here, something that we don't want to miss, you accept it not as the Word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God. One of the great characteristics of the church at Thessalonica is they looked at the Word and they heard it not as from men, but as from God. It is easy for us to sit here sometimes and listen to a pastor like being a great pastor says things, but maybe maybe you're just looking at Ben and he did something this week and you're like, ah, that's just Ben's personality. When we have the Word of God, the Word of God is inspired. It is to lead us. And we're to hear the Word of God as if it's coming from God. No matter who the representatives representative is up here we hear the word of God just as it is the word of God it also said they became imitators of the churches in Christ Jesus and we have to imitate a lot of things when we're training somebody it's it's usually by imitation if you're going to be a surgeon you go in and you watch surgeries if you're going to be an athlete you watch athletes, the way they swing, or the way they pitch, or the way they throw. You watch these things so that you can imitate it. it I can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers imitate Adrian Rogers or somebody that they think is a great preacher because they're developing their way that they communicate. So we imitate a lot. And so they're saying here that the church at Thessalonica imitated the church at Judea. And we know that they had lots of suffering and there's lots of things there that they were imitating. They were learning from them and they did the same things, suffered in much the same way. So in four, we don't want to miss this, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the church at Thessalonica suffered. You know, it's one thing to sign up. It's another thing to get to the place where you're willing to suffer. You have to be willing to, to keep going. I don't know of anybody uh, that just accepts suffering. You build to a point. You love your country so much. You love your God so much. You are willing to suffer that you have to prepare. You have to be in the Word. You have to be a praying person. And you have to do these things or it's really hard to serve the Lord. And so that's the church at Thessalonica. And they were really, man, when Paul is giving you so many compliments and no rebuke, again, I'm not saying they're perfect, but I'm saying Paul gives them compliment after compliment with no rebuke. And in every other book we have to the churches, there is a rebuke of some sort. So they did really, really well. And that's what we want to imitate is being like them. Isn't it wonderful if people would say, man, you need to be just like that church at Eastwood. That South Campus, 
they are following the Lord and they're serving the Lord and just do what they do. When you imitate, you know, one of the most, uh, what's the right word here? Uh, one of the most challenging things is when Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, as I am of Christ. Because, you know, when I think if Paul says that, and that's the word, I need to be able to say, you guys watch me and do what I do as I imitate Christ. That's one of the most intimidating, challenging verses in Scripture. But the church at Thessalonica, they were filling the bill. So of this fork in the road, this will be the right way to go. Let's move over and look at Luke 4.4. I'm sorry, 4.16. We'll look at Luke 4.16. And I'm going to go through this verse by verse because when we have the Word of God here, I just can't improve on what's being said here. I just want to offer some commentary as we read through this. Because this is, this is one of those passages, if I had a chance to sit down with Jesus and just be able to talk with him and ask questions, I don't know that I can narrow it down to one passage that I'd want to discuss, but this would be in my top five for sure. I would just have questions that I want to ask about this passage. But let's look at how they handled things. And so in Luke 4, 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So we all know Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He had family there. When he went to speak there, he had uncles, aunts, cousins, depending on where you're from, aunt or aunt, whichever you prefer. But he had people there that he knew in Nazareth. I mean, he, he had grown up there, and it was a very, very small community. In fact, Israel is very small. Let's, let's put the map up of Israel. I want you to see just how small Israel is. And Washington, D.C. is the big red dot over here, but right in the middle of the map, you see a blemish. That blemish is Israel. Let me, let me put it in a different way for you. If you look at the state of Maine, Israel fits inside of Maine like that. So as we think about Israel, Israel is a very small nation. So this isn't our text, but when you think historically of all that God has done for Israel, a country of this size, God has had his hand on Israel. And he has done some interesting things there. But when we think about Biblically, what is happening in Israel or in Nazareth, you can imagine how small Nazareth is in a country this size back then. So it's, it's very interesting what is going on. And he says to them that he had been brought up there, and, it was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now that's what rabbis did. A visiting rabbi would come to the synagogue and he would read, and then he would go and sit. And when he went to sit, then he would teach after he had read. That was just the custom, and that's the way it, the way it happened. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, quite likely, I cannot guarantee this, but if I was a, a percentage guy, I would say there's a 90% chance 
that the scroll of Isaiah is all this church had. I can't prove that biblically, but in all likelihood, Isaiah was what they had, and they were very proud of their scroll. And in a synagogue, you would have an attendant when a rabbi was there, and the attendant would bring the scroll up to the visiting rabbi, and he would lay it there, and then Jesus would move this out, or the visiting rabbi, in this case Jesus, would roll this out, and he would choose where he wanted to read from. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The passages Jesus read here are two passages, one from Isaiah 58, one from Isaiah 61. When rabbis visited and they, and they put verses together like this, it was known as stringing pearls. And so he took this one pearl from Isaiah 58 and he took the other pearl from Isaiah 61 and he put these two pearls together. So he was stringing pearls together the way they would refer to that. And so he strung these two pearls together and these two pearls just, see this, air quotes, big air quotes, so happen to be the two verses that speak so favorable of the Israelites, of the blessings they were to receive. So he has, he has pulled these two verses out and they were like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. This is great. We hate this Roman oppression. We are looking for the Messiah. And you talk about a culture that was messianic, looking for the Messiah, that was them. They were looking for the Messiah because they, they knew that that was the answer to their problems. Now, when Jesus pulls verses like this, where he gives a little bit and there's more in the rest of the passage, that's known as a kesher. A kesher is a Hebrew word meaning to knot or to tie. It, and uh, it takes... Uh, uh, this is what the late Dwight Pryor actually said. It takes a little bit from the New Testament and you have something in the Old Testament. It's not necessarily a Jewish term. It's just a term that we use when we have a little bit of something and you really don't have to say the whole thing. You just say part of it. So let me give a couple of examples. If I said, it was the night before Christmas, what is the next line of that? Not a creature of stirring. You know, you all, I wouldn't have to go into the whole thing. You would know what I'm talking about. If I said, let's see if you've passed nursery rhymes as a, as a child, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. You got good job. You passed nursery rhymes. But that's what a kesher is. It is a small thing that we say, and we don't have to announce the whole thing to the group because you understand what the rest of it is. So when he took these two small portions from Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, they knew what he was talking about. He was talking about favor. He was talking about the Messiah coming. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. So he had said this, and as you might expect, as he goes back, everybody's interesting as what is going to happen next. He reads the passage, now he's going to explain. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what has he just done? And when he says, this scripture has been fulfilled, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one that can make all this happen. So you can imagine what the people in the audience were thinking. It was awesome. And he said to them, oh, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So when they, when they heard these words, they marveled at the gracious words that were, they, there is nothing he could have said they would have liked to hear better than the Messiah is coming and he is going to straighten out this mess that we're in. He is coming, he is going to straighten it out and there was nothing they could have heard that would have been better. And so they are marveling at the gracious words that he had just spoken. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And this is what that proverb means when he says, physician, heal yourself. It's the physician, and if he had a cure to a disease, and he had the disease, they would say, cure yourself first and prove to us that you can heal us. That's what we want you to do. And so that's what that means. Physician, heal yourself. What we heard, what we have heard, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So we just looked at the size of Israel. When you're in Israel, you know, it is very small. Back then, the message was, uh, the verbal message was the way everything was communicated. And so they were hearing these stories about Jesus. And they were saying, man, the, the miracles we've heard about, Jesus, please do them here. Man, your message is exactly what we're awaiting on. And we want you to do what you've been doing and what we've been hearing about. We want to see them happen here in our hometown. Please do them here. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in your hometown. Now, this is the part that everybody has heard this, and it's true, just like it, like it says, but I'm going to say to you this. If Jesus had carried through to their liking, I'm prefacing this to, with to their liking, it would have been no problem that he would have been in Nazareth or from Nazareth. They would have accepted that with no problem. It would have been great. It actually would have been better that he was from Nazareth if he just would have started doing miracles left and right. They would have been tickled to death. Let's see what happens. But in truth, I tell you, there was many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a, 
but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. We know this story. When Elijah goes to Zarephath, to the widow, and she has flour and bread, the first thing when uh, Elijah is told when he goes there, there'll be a woman there to take care of your needs. So Elijah goes to Zarephath. He sees the woman, and he asks for a drink of water. The woman goes and gets him a drink of water. And he said, could I also have a piece of bread? And the woman said, this is all the flour and oil that I have. And the famine is going on, and she says, honestly, I'm going to fix another meal. Actually, it's a last meal for my son and I. And it's going to be our last meal. So no, this is after we eat, we will die. And Elijah says, make me a piece of bread. Make me a piece of bread, and your oil and your flour will never run out. So she does. And that's exactly what happens. Actually, he says, it'll never run out till it rains. When the drought is broken, then your stuff will end and you can take care of yourself. But until that time, I've got you covered. You're okay. And that's what happened, and she takes care of it. So this woman from Zarephath, that's the story there, and that's the story he gives them. The other story is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, Naaman the Syrian. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So here, again, I'm giving you the fuller story. It's a Kesher. They're getting a little bit of it. The fuller story, they know like that, like many of you. But here, I just love to tell the story because it's one of my favorites. Naaman had a little servant girl. The little servant girl, man, believed in her God. And she saw Naaman suffering. And she said, only if Naaman was with my God, he could be healed. So the story gets told, and Naaman goes to his king. His king contacts the king in Israel. They are there. They, they talk. And he says, send Naaman to Elisha. Or actually, first of all, the king says, what? How? How do you think we can heal him? And Elisha goes, hey, we can take care of this. Send him to me. So he sends him to me. Elisha doesn't even go to the door when he gets there. He sends his servant to the door. So the servant tells him what to do. Go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be healed. Well, Naaman is furious. He is angry because I mean, what do you mean? I thought at least the prophet would come to the door, call upon his God, wave his hand over me, and I'd be healed. But that what he didn't get what he expected. And he was mad about it, and he was going home. Luckily for Naaman, one of his servants came to him and said, Naaman, if God had asked you to do a very hard thing, wouldn't you have done that? And I suppose Naaman thought about that and said, I guess so. If it had been really hard, I would do it. Why wouldn't I just go wash myself in the river? Even though he had two that he thought was cleaner than the Jordan, why wouldn't I just go and do it? So he did. He went to the river, and he dunked himself once, twice, three times, four times, 
Let's say on the fifth time, if he had stopped, he had gone home with his leprosy. Because God had told him what to do. And he dunked himself six times. And on the seventh time, he went under the water. And when he came up, the Bible says his skin was like the skin of a child. He had been healed. So this is two fantastic spiritual stories that they've just gotten. What did they do? When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. Wouldn't you expect they'd be like, oh, look at the works of God. Look at what he's doing. Look what he's accomplishing. But they weren't doing that. They were filled with wrath. Why would they have been filled with wrath? Here is the reason they were filled with wrath. They had an expectation of how God should operate. And they believed that Israelites, they should be blessed. What the problem with the Israelites, they had substituted a position of responsibility with a position of privilege. And when you substitute responsibility with privilege, you get a lot of things out of order. And so they're like, oh, we, we should be blessed. So what, wrath? Here's the deal with both of those stories. Neither one of them were Israelites. Neither one. The woman at Zarephath, she was from Zarephath, not Israel. Naaman, he was from Syria, not Israel. They wanted the Israelites to be blessed. They mistook their position of responsibility and substituted it with privilege. They missed the mark entirely here. He goes on. After they were filled with wrath, it gets worse. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I thought this was interesting. So I was like, throw him off a cliff. I, I'm going to do a little research and see what the cliff was like. It wasn't like throwing him off this stage. I can't imagine one of you guys coming up here and throw me off the stage. It would hurt. But they wanted to throw him off a cliff, the height of a football field. What they wanted to do, they wanted to kill him. He did not give them their preconceived notion. They did not give them the direction that they thought they should go. He did not give them what they had imagined. He had something very special. I mean, how much more special could eternal life be? How much more could following Jesus? I mean, Jesus is right there in front of them, and they cannot get past their preconceived ideas. So here, we have the church at Thessalonica. They're going to the right. These guys are going to the left. They're hearing the word. They even have Jesus standing in front of them telling them, but they have ideas of what the scripture is saying and what it should be like, and it is not matching up. Not matching up. In this room, I would say there is people that have had family issues, 
marriage issues where you had a preconceived idea of when this happens, it should be like this. And you look at the Word of God and you say, the Word of God is not helping me. I just want to ask, is it possible that the Word of God is not helping you or you are not allowing yourself to get past your preconceived ideas? Which is it? I would have liked to know what would have happened in this passage when Jesus gave them the two examples and neither were Israelites. What would have happened if they just went, Jesus, man, we are your chosen people. Could you explain this? Jesus, we want to know more about this passage. Or if we've done something wrong, we want to repent and get our life right. But that's not what they did. Just like sometimes when we come to a fork in the road, we choose the wrong fork. And we come to forks in the road all the time. So this is my, this is my thing I want you to think about this morning. We all come to forks in the road. Sometimes, hopefully, often, we take the right fork, the right way. Sometimes we do not. When you do not take the correct fork in the road, just pray about that. Repent of that. And when you're choosing the fork, when you're out in front of this thing, don't let your preconceived ideas of how this should unfold guide you. Let God and the Word of God guide you. That is what's going to get you to the place you need to be. That's what it will get you there. Don't do it yourself. Let God direct you and guide you. So this morning, just want to take a little time. I want you to pray. I want you to think how you're doing, about how you're doing with the forks in the road that you're coming to. Am I more like the church at Thessalonica or am I more like the people at Nazareth? People at Thessalonica were people that you could imitate. People at Nazareth had preconceived ideas of how everything should be and it wasn't matching. And because it wasn't matching, there is no question about it, they blamed Jesus. They were going to throw him off a cliff. This is not what I want. This is not what I believe. This is not what I want to see. Ha! Away with you. We just need to be sure that we are always looking to the Word always looking to God and letting God guide us. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. 
Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And He stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life death and resurrection and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.